Hello, this is the podcast for Better Strangers for uh, Friday, April 14th, 2023. Uh, this week I'm actually doing uh, this, uh, I wrote this article before I was doing audio versions of things. Um, I think it's pretty relevant given a lot of what I've been talking about both on here and um, and on TikTok, if that's where you're coming from. So uh, this is just my red version of the article, What's It Like to Live Through Collapse, which was kind of a deep dive into John Michael Greer's 2008 book, um, The Long Descent. So uh, without any further ado, this is, uh, this is that article. In 1838, a 28-year-old Abraham Lincoln stood on the stage of the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, and spoke out against slavery. Lincoln, till then mostly unknown, believed that slavery would corrupt the federal government and that mob violence committed against abolitionist movements in the United States represented a threat to the country as a whole. In his most famous line, he declared the destruction of the U.S. could only come from within. This is a quote. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth our own accepted in their military chest, with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we, are, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. End quote. The speech helped, helped cement Lincoln's reputation as a speaker and his stance as an abolitionist. But, I'm sorry, it needs to be said, the live through all time line is a bit much. Even the Nazis confined their Third Reich to a thousand years. Though the tone seems, tone seems apt given our current self-inflicted troubles, Lincoln's life timeline is staggeringly immodest. If we say that generations on average cover 25-year spans, we're only 12 generations out from the founding of this country. We're only about 500 generations out from the dawn of civilization, 7,500 generations from the dawn of man. America is a blink. The amount of space it fills in the timeline of human events is minuscule. But even so, it has changed immensely in those 12 generations. Think about that. Think about 1776 or 1492 or 33 AD. You know the names of a few people who were alive then, Washington, Columbus, Jesus, but most of what you know is just broad, vague strokes. You likely do not even know your own ancestor's name from, gen from 12 generations back, or have any clue where they were living. You might be able to dig it out on Ancestry.com, but then it's just a name on a screen. The blue bloods among us may have long written family histories, meticulously kept genealogies filled with great names and deeds of daring do. But for the vast majority of us, the ancestors that lived, either in the colonies or elsewhere, at the time of the revolution, are basically indistinguishable from every other anonymous face in history. You could pass their tombstone in an old graveyard and never know that the soil under that rock contains traces of a body that had to live in order for you to get here. Likewise, these ancestors could almost certainly not picture you your life would seem impossibly alien to them. Imagine their vast confusion if some mad scientist opened a window from their world into ours so they could glimpse your day for a few seconds. You in your car on your commute, popping some old food into the microwave, wearing shorts inside your house in the wintertime, sitting on a cushioned reclining chair doused in the electric blue light of the TV screen. Nothing about you and who you are would seem comprehensible to them. It seems reasonable, then, to assume that we'd feel the same about our descendants 12 generations on. 
Their technology is far advanced to ours. Their living conditions harder in some ways, easier in others. Maybe they are part robot and find our fleshy human messiness to be an unseemly vestigial trait that was happily left behind, the way we think of chimps flinging poop at one another. Maybe they are the doughy, zoned-out zombies of Wally, barely interested in their actual reality, but deeply immersed in whatever the 2270 AD equivalent of Hamilton is, some period piece about our time that projects their society and their politics onto our decontextualized struggles. Maybe they are tanned and fit and reek of body odor, having only salty ocean water to bathe themselves in underneath the floorboards of their floating villages. Whoever they are, your life to them is as alien to them as your, as your peasant great-great-great-grandfather's life is to yours. To them, your present is a smattering of notable names, a few mov- movements that made their mark and led to something bigger that still exists in their present. Revolutions, technological innovations, and a few sordid cautionary tales like the Salem witch trials are to us. All of this is, if weird, at least possible to imagine. Now take it a step further. Imagine a time after America. Imagining this at the peak of empire may seem a little bit seditious, but the borders, the countries, and the governments that we live in are far more fluid than we allow ourselves to think. Pick a place on Earth and watch the course of its human population over time. Let's pick China. There has been some sort of empire in China for probably 42 centuries, but if you look at a time lapse of those dynasties, and you'll see, an, you'll see an empire whose land is constantly expanding and contracting, breaking into pieces, and then reuniting. I do have a gif of that, by the way, in the article if you want to check it out. With a deep imperial inhale, the borders slip over into Tibet, out into Mongolia, and then with the exhale, they shrink back to well within the current borders. Within those breaths, too, are entire revolutions, massive transformations of the social order, with entire cities, people, and histories burnt to the ground. We think of China as this ancient civilization, but in reality, the current nation of China has existed since the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. All of my grandparents are older than China. Even our borders in the U.S. are not the solid block that we imagine. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were only 45 states. The last two, Alaska and Hawaii, weren't granted statehood until 1959. The U.S., as it currently exists geographically, is only 63 years old, and that's only if you don't count the quasi-conquered lands that we added and lost in the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars. That's only if you leave out the proxy governments installed in the Middle East and Central America, our little capitalist Vichy outposts. If you looked at a time-lapse of the expansion of the U.S. globally over the past couple of centuries, there would have been massive additions early on, but now it would have slowed, and you may start to think that this was the crest of the breath, that the exhale was now inevitable. Yes, you may say, but the government as it currently exists has been, for, has been around for 244 years. That's something, right? But is it? Universal women's suffrage has just hit its 100th birthday in the United States. And universal male suffrage, while nominally the law since the end of the Civil War, was not true in effect for black Americans in the South until the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 58 years ago. If you're a millennial, your parents are likely older than American democracy. We don't allow ourselves to think these thoughts because the United States feels like the ground underneath us. We wave its flags, we sing its songs, we even fight and die in its wars. To question the permanence of the United States is, for many of us, to question our very identities. It is uncomfortable, then, to acknowledge that in 12 generations, the United States, at least as we know it, is almost certainly not going to exist. It's with this long view of time that ecologist John Michael Greer wrote his book, The Long Descent. When we talk about societies collapsing, we tend to think of what happens in the movies. Our hero, our hero wakes up in a hospital bed and steps outside to find that London has been overrun by zombies. But real collapses happen on a much slower timeline. On average, Greer says, it takes about 250 years for a civilization to complete the process of decline and fall. 
The experience of the decline will depend on what generation you are born into. If you're a millennial, you likely already take the shining city on a hill described by your parents with a grain of salt and perhaps a bit of derision. For your kids, that society will be as alien to them as World War II is to us. There will be plenty of vivid stories about it, yes, but they'll have trouble understanding what it was truly like. We like to think that our civilization is different from all those civilizations that have risen and fallen over time, but this is hubris. It's sort of like imagining that you're the first person who won't die. All civilizations rise and fall, and viewed with the right perspective, this is a good thing, or perhaps just a natural thing. Just as there's a circle of life for individuals, there is for societies, too. New societies can't form without the decay of the old. Our civilization is the Mufasa to some future generation Simba. Late capitalism or climate change can be our Uncle Scar and the Hyenas, and mutual aid in guerrilla gardening can be our Timon and Pumbaa? I don't know. I'm torturing it. Anyway, moving on. Historians will argue over whether our decline, over when our decline started. Some will put it at Vietnam, others will say Watergate, others will go late and say Trump. If it's Vietnam, we're already six years into our decline, so there's only 190 to go. Our culture, Greer says, holds two opposing myths about our future. The first is the myth of eternal progress, that we will keep on innovating our way out of things and we'll end up living among the stars. I will admit that I personally rather like this myth and have always felt nice warm feelings reading the work of the myth's chief, chief proponent, Carl Sagan. But, as Greer points out, there's literally nothing that has happened historically, and certainly little happening now, to suggest that we will be the first ever civilization to not enter into inevitable decline. But collapse is a deceiving word. The sudden drop in size of the global population predicted in books like The Limits to Growth sound frightening, but it does not necessarily mean everyone suddenly dropping dead of disease or starvation. Greer explains, quote, Track the impact of decline on public health and you have a model that can be applied to many other dimensions of the process of the long descent. As domestic heating and air conditioning become too expensive for most, for example, deaths from pneumonia, pneumonia and influenza on the one hand and heat stroke and insect-borne tropical diseases on the other will steadily climb. So will infant mortality, while rates of live birth per capita will plunge. Russia is a good model here. Since the collapse of communism, it's seen rising death rates and falling birth rates to such an extent that the population will be cut in half by 20, 2100. And yet there hasn't been any massive catastrophe to account for this. Simply shifts in statistics driven by economic and political failure. Um, this is not in the actual article, but uh, th this is something that I've discussed, and I think another thing I recently did, talking about how um, those... I think I put that actually in my last uh, my last article, but that's something that's been happening with the millennial generation, with our economic and political failures, as we've been seeing a huge decline in the um, the birth rate among people in our generation. So the, the, I wrote that kind of before this stuff was becoming more well-known. So anyway, back to the article. In the midst of this, there may well be massive catastrophes, but those might look like something you've just recently lived through, COVID. And these catastrophes play themselves out in different ways. I, for example, do not personally know anyone to have di died of COVID. A friend of mine in town, however, lost both of his parents to the disease in a matter of weeks. What COVID did to me could best be described as a growing kick to my mental health, which on a statistical level has its own growing death toll in the form of suicides and drug and alcohol-related deaths. None of this makes the personal tragedies that accompany civilizational decline and global catastrophe less horrifying, but they may be tragedies that you are better able to fathom. Most of us have lost someone we love, know, so, know someone who has lost a child, know a parent or grandparent who died sooner than we would have expected. These small catastrophes are, unfortunately, fundamental to being human. What we often forget, though, is that these tragedies are inextricable from the larger political context they take place in. It's easy to connect an immigrant death on the border to the larger issue of immigration policy in the United States, but our own deaths are just as connected to larger social issues. 
Take a situation I know a large number of my friends and family have been caught in, putting off going to a doctor because you can't afford your health care. This, for you personally, may be fine for the time being, but for a percentage of people, the doctor's appointment they skip will mean that an early cancer diagnosis will be missed and they will die because of it. You can connect all deaths to larger trends. Every beloved family member that has died in a car crash is connected to the international rise of the automobile or to political systems that have failed to regulate for certain safety standards. Every grandparent who died of lung cancer is tied to the rise and subsequent fall of the cigarette industry. Every overdosed brother to the opioid epidemic, every murder or suicide at the point of a gun, a result of America's refusal to ban or even adequately regulate its firearms. Our individual cases may have different narratives or explanations behind them, but we all live in larger contexts and we are all, we hate to admit this, but it's true, statistics. Statistics are not interested in personal stories, they are interested in trends. They collapse our little worlds into single points of data, and all these points can then be used to tell larger stories about our societies. The larger story of collapse contains millions of these tiny stories within it. And as we all know, having experienced car crashes, cancer deaths, murders, suicides, losses of unborn children, and natural disasters, our personal stories can often feel very different from the ones that we hear told by the statistics. This does not mean that we are delusional or that the statistics are being interpreted wrong, though, let's be honest, let's be honest, it could be either. It just means that human experience is impossibly complex and that many different stories with seemingly contradictory narratives can be true at the same time. We, we often live our very, our very happy lives, we often live very happy lives in between the dire statistics that our lives comprise. If Greer is right about the nature of collapse, then you do not need to fear it because you are already living in it. The second myth about our future, according to Greer, is the apocalypticism adopted by pessimists, religious fundamentalists, and doomsday preppers. This myth, like the progress myth, is not rooted in historical reality. It is violent and dramatic, almost righteous in its totality. It is a complete collapse of the world order, a return to the dark ages, but more desperate and violent. Now, this doesn't mean that aspects of a collapse wouldn't be really bad. The Teotwaki, which is the end of the world as we know it uh, acronym, that preppers talk about is based on the fact that much of what we rely upon in modern life is very dependent on a tenuous global supply chain. Much of the food that enters our stores, for example, arrives from other countries, and we don't really store much of our food in silos in case of shortages anymore. So a sudden collapse of the economy that provides this food could conceivably be said to produce food shortages. Hence, preppers stocking their fallout shelters with canned food and emergency rations. But we're seeing today how this is more likely to play out. Different world events causing patchy shortages of random products, whether it be of toilet paper at the end of the beginning of COVID, book publishing dates being pushed back because of a barge stuck in the Suez Canal, or baby formula disappearing off the shelves because of bacterial infections. Regardless, the complete sudden collapse and chaos that we're used to in zombie movies and whatnot is an unlikely way for our current seismic shifts to play out. Greer insists that we currently view things like climate change or peak oil, which is his personal favorite contender for causing the decline of humanity, as problems when in fact they are predicaments. The distinction is important. A problem can be solved. A predicament cannot. So a curable sickness like chickenpox, that's a problem. Death, that's a predicament. The two require entirely different approaches because a problem is something you can work towards fixing and a predicament is something you work towards living with. Our current trajectory of decline is a predicament. This is not because we are dumb and can't figure out the problems that are facing us. It's because this is how civilizations work. They rise, they fall, just like, like humans are born, grow old, and then die. The difference between our civilization and others is that ours is the first to industrialize. Our rise has taken us higher than any civilization in history, so it's a longer way to fall. That was the lesson of the limits to growth. You cannot have eternal growth. Eventually, you need to contract. 
And the good news is that we can do things to manage these contractions. We can build more resilient communities. We can become more independent of the global supply chain by learning how to garden and forage. We can become more resourceful and less wasteful, and we can adapt to a changing planet and a changing society. Greer recommends learning, at least as a hobby, a profession that will always be in need. This could be carpentry, mechanics, cooking, medicine, or even brewing beer, which will never go out of style. There is no shortage of books with useful information on how to get by through foraging and salvaging. Lewis Dartnell's The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm, is a good place to start. But anything you, you, can, you can learn that makes you less dependent on the cogs of capitalism, which appear to be grinding slower as we speak, is worth checking out. It may not even be for your generation. It may be knowledge you can pass down to your kids. This will take quite some time, and we, we may still have the chance to build something better on the other side for our future generations. But to do that, we can't give in to the delusional optimism of the myth of eternal progress or the hopeless despair of the myth of doomsday. We must recognize that even with climate change and looming collapse, we still have lives to live, and those lives can still be full of joy, boredom, rage, and fun. Uh, I have the text version of this in the article. Probably should have mentioned that at the beginning. I'll mention it in like the, the notes and everything. Um, but there's some images and also links to the books. Uh, if you buy the book through those links, of course, I get you know my usual um, kickback of uh, you know a percentage of whatever you buy. And I do it through Bookshop, not through Amazon. I never do it through Amazon. Anyway, uh, that is the podcast for this week. I hope you guys all have a great weekend. Uh, it's lovely here in New Jersey, so I'm going to go outside. So I hope you get to do the same thing. Have a good weekend.